Hollywood has taken heat in recent years for a lack of inclusivity and representation. But today's guests tell us that the film and television industry is changing. She's Ida Darvish, and he's Josh Gad. This week on Story in the Public Square. Welcome to Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. Joining me from his home in Rhode Island is my friend and co-host, G. Wayne Miller of the Providence Journal. Each week, we talk about big issues with great guests, authors, journalists, filmmakers, and more to make sense of the big stories shaping public life in the United States today. This week, we're joined by the remarkably talented couple, Ida Darvish and Josh Gad, both tremendously accomplished actors and producers who join us from California. Ida and Josh, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having us. Our pleasure. So excited to chat with you guys. There's a, there's a, there's a lot that we want to talk to you about, but you know, for, for our audience who maybe doesn't know a lot about both of you, um, start a little bit with your backgrounds. Ida, uh, tell us about your sort of your, your, your journeys to Hollywood, as it were. I drove out to LA as soon as I was done with college, literally two days later, which don't ask me why I ended up in Texas for college. And <laughs> that's a whole other story. Um, and I, you know, hit the pavement. It was not an easy road by any stretch of the imagination. Um, my look wasn't the most popular at the time because this was in 97. So it was like a, a pretty tough road finding an agent and all of that. I started to do a lot of theater in LA, which I ended up enjoying immensely. Um, and it's actually where Josh and I met in 2004. Um, and I really loved theater first and foremost. I never went to New York because I'm not necessarily a singer, but I love live theater and it's my passion. Um, I then kind of got some things on my own. I didn't really have an agent submitting me. And so I didn't do it the normal route. You know, I mostly uh, found things on my own through doing readings, through doing a couple auditions here and there, and then they, people would think of me for things. So that's kind of been my acting road. Um, and the production and I decided I wanted to have a little more control of uh, my creative life. And so I decided to get into producing, but on the creative producing side, getting, bringing ideas to the table, uh, figuring out how to get them made, how to get the right people involved. Um, so that's been a really fun and awesome journey. And I'm working on straddling the two and figuring out how to be able to do both without having a big name as an actor first and then producing. It's a very interesting and Interesting balance. Uh, so, how how this theater though, this quarantine has made me miss going and doing live theater. Uh, how old were you when you got the theater bug? Were you high school, grade school, younger? Oh no, I started in grade school. The theater bug started in grade school. But coming out to Hollywood, I thought, well, you know, theater wasn't the big scene here. 
you know, it was TV and film. So that's kind of what I thought I was coming out here for. And then I ended up doing way more theater than anything else here, um, which I, it, it is my first love. So that never was something that I didn't want to do. I just wanted to do theater with both. So Josh, you were, you were born in Florida. And, but your your parents have uh, a very fascinating and historically significant background and also uh, your grandparents. Tell us about that because my guess is that that background and hearing stories from them has influenced your career and also your your political beliefs and your social justice beliefs. Tell us about that. A fascinating background could easily uh, be referred to as confusing background as well. My uh, my my lineage is one of wonderment. Um, so you know, my grandparents were both Holocaust survivors. Um, uh, my grandfather lived in the Ludge ghetto. Uh, my grandmother um, uh, lived similarly in a ghetto in Poland. Uh, both were stripped of their lives and what they knew at a very early age. Um, and despite the generational gap between um, them and I, and that had a profoundly large influence on me, right? Um, uh, comedy equals tragedy plus timing, I believe is the quote. And, and there's, um, there's a lot of that uh, in my life, whether it's my parents getting divorced at a young age, it's, sort of the cliche of how one finds comedy along the way. Um, my mother was born in Germany at the end of the Second World War. My grandfather was a Jew born in Afghanistan, <laughs> which is again, of uh, just a, an oxymoron in of, and of itself. Uh, but, you know, all of that did inform me because it was just, there was a, a cultural um, hodgepodge to my background that made me confused as a child. Um, and through that confusion, I sort of found that a great escape was uh, comedy, was make-believe, was um, this thing we call acting and pretending. And that drew me in. In terms of me becoming, um, you know, socially activated, I, I would say that that was an organic thing that came out of understanding at a very early age what happened to groups of people who were othered? What happened to those who didn't necessarily have a, a loud enough voice to speak up for themselves? Um, or those who were forced into a position where they weren't allowed to speak up for themselves? That, that felt profoundly important to me. Um, and and the, the searing image in my mind is my grandparents you know, at the age of six, recognizing that they were branded on their arms uh, with a tattoo, like cattle. And that image stuck with me. And that image, I think, really, really informed the kind of person that I wanted to be to make sure that that never happened to any other group again. Um, and I think that, that, you know, to speak to why am I so vocal, it's because I understand, I think, inherently in my DNA, what it means to to see people lose everything. Yeah. Wow, that's that's really powerful. And, and Eder, I know you share uh, Josh's beliefs 
in this regard. And, and we're going to get to, I think, a little bit later, many of the causes that you're active in today, including mental health and other causes. But Josh, getting back to you, the, the acting bug uh, hit you early in life? And is that true? <laughs> yeah, like Ida, like Ida, I think or in grade school is a, is a great uh, gateway drug to uh, to you know, pretending to be other people. And I, um, I was about six years old when I got bit by the bug and I, you know, fell in love with performing at uh, my day school and then parlayed that into a uh, children's theater called the Hollywood Playhouse for the Performing Arts. I met a, a couple of people that are still friends, including Randy Rainbow, who's become um, uh, sort of a, a brilliant political satirist uh, on on uh, on Twitter and the like, and and uh, my best friend Seth Gable, uh, who's a working actor as well. So we we got the bug early, and and in in uh, South Florida, and I just knew that I wanted to do it. Didn't know, you know, I I thought I wanted to do it professionally at the time, and my parents, specifically my single mother said to me, get an education first, make sure that you get a diploma. Don't, you know, lose your innocence. Don't lose your childhood, have those experiences. And I was angry. Even when I got, even when I went to Carnegie Mellon drama, my freshman year, there was a kid named Josh Groban. And I called my parents up and I was like, well, this guy's leaving school to go pursue, uh, you know, a career uh, freshman year. Why can't I? He's also named Josh. Uh, and, and, and my mom was like, "Well, yeah, it looks like uh, you got the unlucky of 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 the uh, the Josh tickets, but you're staying in school." And I was so grateful because I needed that time. I needed that experience in order to fully understand who I was. So, so you got to Broadway uh, pretty soon thereafter, or relatively soon thereafter, with the Book of Mormon. Tell us about that. How did you how did you get that role? I mean, it became you know you were nominated for a Tony, and obviously it was yeah. a launch, launch pad for your career. I I would assume that was Ida and I had um, had I, I sort of came to L.A. in pursuit of TV and and movies, uh, and ended up doing a black box theater show instead. And I met Ida. And I, at the time I had no, I was really bouncing back and forth. I was going back and forth. And Ida and I played Mr. and Mrs. Trotsky in a play called All in the Timing by David Ives. And it was, a, it reminded me of why I fell in love with acting. Cause I had become so disillusioned and I turned to Ida and I said, I want to go to law school. And you looked at me and said, I don't want him to be married to him. <laughs> and I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm so into her. I want to like actually get paid. I want to do. And it was like, no. So I, I ended up staying in LA. And one day I auditioned for this show called 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. And I got it. And right as we were starting to like, you know, date, all of a sudden I'm pulled to New York and I'm doing this thing. And she came back and forth and she looked at me at the time and she's like, this is great. Let's never do this again, please. Let's never move back to New York. And I'm like, okay, 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 I promise. I get a call one day to start, to do a workshop of this thing by the South Park guys called Book of Mormon. At the time, I remember turning to Eden saying, oh, it must be like 
they're doing like a musical version of South Park and I'm going to be like a, I'm going to be Cartman. Like, I don't know what this is. <laughs> and, and I listened to it and I was like, I played it for Ida and, I, and we were both like, the first three songs were so hilarious. We we're like, this is brilliant. And then it got to a song called Hasadiga Ibawai. And we were both like, uh-uh, I can't, I can't do this. I, there are the things that they are saying, yeah. I'll get shot. I'll like, I'll, yeah, I'll be killed. And I, and I remember being like, this is like, it's one thing to do it in the form of a cartoon. It's another thing to do it in real life. And I, I, I sort of, we, we were both just like, well, what's the harm in doing a workshop? And we did this workshop and I white knuckled it and it went amazing. And for the next three years, we kept refining it. And then one day I get the call and it's, you're going back to Broadway. Well, Ida was pregnant with Ava, our first. And suddenly I had to move to New York a month after our baby was born. Oh. And she was incredible because she was just like, all right, let's do this. And what, what ended up being this is the last time I'm doing this before. And <laughs> became, this is truly the last time I am ever doing this. And so they moved to New York and for one, for a year and a half, basically we lived in an 800 square foot apartment. I did eight shows a week and it, and it did, it transformed life. I mean, it was, it was sort of like a catalyst to being able to do the things we do now and, and create and be, um, you know, innovators and, and try to parlay that into something bigger. Um, at the time, Ida was very mad at me because I turned down Modern Family. Uh, and she was like, uh, you sure you want to do that? This could be uh, good. I actually thought it could be really good. The pilot had its problems when I read it, but I was like, In the, original the script, role right? is really a good role. It was a great it's role. It's out of the box of what you normally do. So maybe you should do it and then Chose Book of and I chose Book of Mormon. And, I didn't know what modern yeah. was going to be. So, but that was that was very uh, very early on, and and you know a part of what you learn, I think, when you're doing this thing, is you need a partner to ground you and to help inform your decisions and to push back. And Ida, at a very early stage in my career, was like make sure you're doing everything for the right reason make sure and it's something you still say it's like there's three brackets that we talk about it's like are you doing it you have to meet two of the three right is it something that's creatively like inspiring for you we need to take a quick moment for station identification this is story in the public square where storytelling meets public affairs an audio version of this show can be heard four times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at Lutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller. He's an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 19 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guests this week are Ida Darvish and Josh Gad, two of Hollywood's great talents 
both in front of and behind the cameras. You can find Ida on Twitter at Ida Darvish. That's I-D-A-D-A-R-V-I-S-H. And Josh Gad is simply at Josh Gad. That's J-O-S-H-G-A-D. Is it something that will further your career? And is it something that will bring in money that you want and need? And the money alone is never good enough as far as I'm concerned. So it has to be coupled with one of those two things. So, you know. And the, and the, great, the greatest thing about that is when I've chosen it for one of the three and only one of the three, it's those decisions that I've regretted the most in my career. Well, Ida, where, so that's that's profoundly wise, and I, I think about you as the as the young college graduate heading off to Hollywood. Where, where does that where does that wisdom come from? Well, I don't know if it's wisdom. Just I think life experience. Um, maybe it is. You know, she got se- she got seven years on me. She's the elder state. The elder state. Um, I. I think not getting what I wanted for so long made me think about what I really want and why I want it. So I think the hard road made me more introspective about what I want and need. And, and, you know, I was lucky enough, we were lucky enough that he actually, his career did take off and provided, you know, an opportunity for me to really look at that and try to mold my life the way I wanted to mold it as opposed to having to do things for the sake of doing them, you know? I also think that part of what we tend to look at when we're, and this is really driven by Ida, it's like when we're looking at projects is, Ida talks about the fact that she arrived in the 90s. And at the time that a young woman who wasn't white and blonde or brunette but half Italian, half Iranian, she didn't have opportunities. It was like, we need a background terrorist in True Lies, or like, we need, you know, it was that kind of thing. And it is really, really amazing, albeit really late, to see that things like representation are only now starting to matter. And she opened my eyes up to that because early on, there was a lot of frustration with like, where are the roles for people who look like me? Where are the roles for people who aren't necessarily going to be on Melrose Place? Or like, it's like, it it can't just be all white American women in every single thing. And as a white guy coming to Hollywood, I didn't see it. I was blind to it. And and that's been a profound eye-opening thing. And now in everything that we do, we do, it always starts from a place of what voices can we bring into this that don't necessarily have a seat at the table? How can we broaden opportunities for people who don't necessarily uh, always get an opportunity to tell their stories? You know, I'm curious to hear you say that, Josh. Hollywood as an industry has taken a lot of heat in recent years because of its lack of, of inclusive inclusiveness and representation. How do you think the industry is doing? I know it's hard to be a critic of the entire industry, but just on balance, do you have a sense of, you know, 
I know what you're trying to do to try to be uh, more representational, but the industry in general, how do you think it's doing? I think here's my fear about the industry, and I'm just going to be very blunt and honest. I think my fear of the industry is that there's trends, right? It's trendy mm. to do this. It's trendy to do that. And this is a more profound issue than a trend. And it's a more profound issue than, you know, than we've ever even realized. I mean, it's hundreds of years of profound. So I think that, I think that it has a long way to go. And I think that you have to, you have to, it's interesting, you know, when somebody was telling me a story about how he's trying to fill a writer's room and there's a, a black man and a black uh, and, a, and a white man who are up for the one job. And they're looking at both of their their credentials. And unfortunately, the white man's way more, he's just more right for the job. And it has nothing to do with color or of your skin or your background or anything. So you're faced with all of these situations and who do you hire? You wanna be fair to everyone. And it shouldn't be about any of that. It should be about the best person for the job. And I think that Hollywood has a long way to go on that. And obviously, we know, as we know, like the, the award shows and all of that, I don't think any of them have been fair to uh, people of color or people of different ethnicities. You know, it's just started to, but you also, I hold my breath because I'm like, is this a trendy thing that they're mm -hmm. doing? Is this a real it, thing that they're it doing? Can't be a, it you can't know? be a fickle sort of, well, we're being inclusive because that's the hot thing right now. And what the one thing that gives me hope is the greatest driver of influence in our industry is hard cash. Yeah. And when movies like Black Panther make a billion dollars at the box office, it becomes much harder to make the argument yeah. that an in, only a, a cast filled with white people in front of and behind the camera can do well, can do well internationally. And and that to me, that was a huge. It, 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 it's a, it, those are game changers, yeah. and and you're seeing more and more that it's not becoming the exception, but it's becoming the norm. The more it becomes the norm the more opportunities it presents. And, and to Ida's point, it's like, well, you have a, a white guy and a black writer both up for the same job. Of course the white writer's gonna have more credentials because those opportunities haven't necessarily been afforded to the other party. Mm -hmm. And so you have to weigh all of those things and we have to now mm -hmm. give opportunities to people to have the experience to get better at their craft and and i think that that i i i think that we are in a position and like-minded people are in positions now where when they're developing stuff you want to think about of the broader spectrum of voices out there because there's also interesting stories that have never been told because of that very thing so that I think is what we find so exciting about this moment. And it is all... exciting. It is very exciting. I, I'm always like, it's exciting. And I'm like, I don't want it to end that excitement. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want it to be something that's fleeting, that excitement. I want it to last. And I think 
you know, the reality is, is this industry is just a mirror of our society as a whole. You know, it's like, what are we going to do really underneath everything to change things systemically, you know, not just on the surface. Yes. So that's where I think the industry is in the same place. I think that our but, world is in. Yeah. Yeah, no. it's not it's not just an industry problem, is it? it? It is a much more profound issue that I think affects a lot. And, and in many ways, I would argue that Hollywood has been very forward thinking sure. in this moment, in this moment, not in the past. But I think that other um, vocations and other industries could definitely take a page from what what's happening right now. And and to Edith's point, I hope it I hope it continues and isn't just a, a fleeting sort of thing. So you talk about change in Hollywood, and you're both very vocal and public about change needed in another area, which is understanding and awareness of mental health and mental illness. And as as you guys both know, that's been one of my passions for many years. Talk about that, why that's important to you and the message you get out and, and maybe start with you, Josh, because you've been very yeah. open about your anxiety. You got about two and a half minutes. Um, I was uh, paralyzed by anxiety uh, around the time that I was a senior in college. I started having incredibly difficult anxiety attacks that made me um, close to agoraphobic. Um, I, there was an almost chemical imbalance and, and when my family would look at me, they, they, they couldn't understand why I was behaving so irrationally, why I would suddenly have outbursts of tears, why I, I, I thought I was having a heart attack. And it's very hard to sort of, you know, describe what that is and have people who aren't going through it understand it. And I felt very alone and medication and therapy saved my life. And there was an element of shame to it that I didn't realize until much later that is all, you know, something that I was projecting on it that doesn't belong there. Because the truth is, is there's nothing shameful about tackling those things and, and being open about them and sharing your experiences so that the next Josh doesn't have to feel alone as a 20 something year old having these you know, emotions and not, and losing, feeling like you're losing control. So it's, it's been very, it's been very important for me to share my story and to help others. Um, I think as far as mental health goes, what I think is a huge problem is that people who need it can't afford it most of the time. Mm. And I think that that, and it's, 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 it shouldn't be that way when you're talking about mental health. It should never be that way because I've seen people who struggle to get their medication, to get an appointment with a psychiatrist, to, you know, it's just not fair. It's not okay because that mental health affects our entire society. Like it's, it's something that should just be something you can go and not have to, not have to scrape and try and figure out and not be able to afford and just the mental health issue continues and becomes worse and that know, is a, that's a great point is that i i do think that the opportunity for for medication and therapy is elusive to a lot of people who are yeah. struggling and that is something that is just in 2021 okay. it's unacceptable it really is that's well said and that's a powerful point for us to leave it on uh Ida darvish and josh gad Thank you so much for sharing your stories with us. 
Uh, that's all the time we have this week for storing the public square. But if you want to know more, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter or visit PellCenter.org. We can always catch up on previous episodes. For Wayne, I'm Jim, asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square. <laughs>